Take these hands and lift them up, for I have not the strength to praise you near enough, for I have nothing, oh, I have nothing. Sometimes it takes a mountain, just the course. Sometimes it takes a mountain. Sometimes a troubled sea. Sometimes it takes a Your love is 
bow our heads together. If you just want to put whatever your need is on your heart, and just hold that before the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you know what it takes to get a hold of us. Lord, that whatever we need to go through, Lord, that you could get what you're trying to get to us, Lord, through our, sometimes our thick skulls. Sometimes we run in our own direction and we're uncertain. Voices leading us this way and that way. But Lord, we thank you that sometimes you put us where we need to be just to hear it the way you need us to hear it. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, as we're approaching now the word of life, Lord. And Lord, this is the, a very solemn and a very sincere time in any service, Lord. That, Father, we want you to come and speak to us, Lord. The words of a man would fail, Lord Jesus. Lord, anything I would say, Father, wouldn't help very much at all, if at all. But Father, one word from you, Lord, could change a life. Lord, just five minutes in your presence, Father. Lord, how it would turn all the situations around, Lord. If we could just get into one mind and one accord, Lord, your prophet said there wouldn't be a feeble one among us. Lord, we know, Lord Jesus, the quickening power that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in us. Lord, we brought our licks of fire this morning, Lord, and we're willing, Father, that whatever your will is, Lord, we want to be subjected to it, Lord. You know the needs, Lord, that are represented, Lord, by every hand, by every heart, Father. You know the unspoken requests, those that have been spoken before. You know those questions that are on our minds and on our hearts, Lord. Father, I pray you go individually to each one of us. Have the preeminence, Lord God. Help us to get our own thoughts out of the way that your word could have the preeminence. So we give you the reins now this morning. Have your way. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning to each and every one. Let's take our Bibles together. It's good to see all of you here with us. I want to welcome the visitors that are here with us. Whether you've been here before, whether you haven't been here before, I trust you feel welcome. Amen. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, if you would, Hebrews chapter 2. I was so blessed this morning, just, Brother Brandon, the prayer that you prayed. He's here. It's just up to us to welcome him in. Amen. Thank you, Sister Angie, for that song. Just trust him and believe. We complicate it in our minds. It's got to be this way. It's got to be that way. This is how God will make his word come to pass. This is how it's going to happen. This is how my life needs to be dealt with. Just trust him and believe. He'll do it in a way that we didn't really think. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
What a promise. That through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil. And he says, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Amen. May the Lord is blessing to the reading of the word. You may have your seats if you'd like. I want to take a title this morning, and I'm not going to get through it. I, I'd hoped I would, and then as, as I was putting my notes together, I realized I've got way too much for one service or two services, so we'll just trust the Lord and see how he leads. But uh, I want to take a title of Light Pressing In. Light Pressing In, and as a subtitle, I would take From Detractor to Secure, From Detractor to Secure, and I want just to take this this thought here from Hebrews, and maybe if I could read a quote to start out with from the message, Shalom. Brother Brandon would talk about the seventh church, seventh church age, and he would talk about how it was all smothered out. We know the way, and we were familiar with how Brother Branham would draw it on the blackboard, and how it would happen in the sky when the, right before the Pope would visit Israel, and how in, in 1933, and how it would be all of these signs that God would, would make it to show how the light it started out bright, but it got less and less in each church age. And then after the dark ages, it seemed to go up. And then down in the dark age, in the last age, it just went down until gross darkness is upon the people. Until there's, just, there's hardly any light at all. And, and he says that the, the seventh church age all smothered out with Christ on the outside. You can read it from, from Revelations chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would open, he's on the outside of the church. He's on the outside of every life. He's been pushed out. But the moon, he said also in identifying it as we talked about, all the darkness coming upon the earth. But he says the light pressing in now. Begin to show what's going to take place. The thing will be destroyed. And the light will come in and destroy it. Darkness pressing in on the people, darkness pressing in on the church, but he says, but the light now is pressing in, beginning to show what's going to take place, the thing that will destroy it, what's going to destroy the kingdom of Satan, what's going to destroy Satan's, what's going to bring about a millennium, what's going to bring about eternity, the light will come in and destroy it, the light of God. And he says, and the saints shall inherit the earth, the meek shall inherit the earth, the earth, the moon, darkness will be took away, and the darkness of the night will pass away, and darkness with all of their creeds and their their death, and away from the word of God, these perverted things that they're saying, the light will break forth upon the day. Amen. And as I, as I begin to, to, to look into this subject of the light beginning to press in, and as it, we live in, in, this, in this kind of a day and we're this kind of an age where gross darkness is upon the people and gross darkness on the face of the earth, but the Bible says, arise and shine for thy light has come. 
And, and, and we could look at this from, as we want to take a subject, maybe you can turn with me to John chapter 3 as I'm speaking, John chapter 3, and that, that what, what often Jesus even would become to all of darkness, Jesus is a detractor. If I could say it that way, you say, well, <laughs> that's quite a way of saying it, Brother Andrew, but I want you to understand something because there's a war that's going on. A war between light and darkness, a war between life and death. But we know when we've read it in Hebrews chapter 2, where it would talk about in verse 17 and say, um, or in say, first, sorry, verse 14, that say that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, we already know who's on the winning side. We already know that light overcomes darkness. It's very simple. If we just turn on the light in a room, you could walk into a dark room and it can be a scary thing when there's darkness in the room. But when light is turned on, the, 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 the fear is vanished. The fear is done away with because light has come. Brother Brennan would preach a message a couple times, there's a man here that can turn on the light. Amen. And it's not us or, or, or any one of us, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's able to turn on the light. John chapter 3, I've got you turned to it, but I haven't. John chapter 3 and verse 18 would read this way and would say, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation. That light is come into the world. And that man loved darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. In other words, the light itself is not condemnation. But rather what you do with the light is what brings condemnation. You can't stop the light from coming, but our uh, receiving or rejecting of that light either brings salvation or condemnation. Amen. Amen. And he says, but man, they, they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, to them, the light was a detractor. The light was something that was, uh, that was shining. Um, in other words, it, sorry, I'm just trying to get this out right, but... If you have a stick, and you have the only stick, it doesn't matter how crooked that stick is. To you, it's straight. If I pick up a stick, and it's incredibly crooked, and I look at it, and then I say, well, this is what straight is, then that's, that's all you'll ever know. To you, that is straight. But when someone comes with a straight stick, then you can see your stick isn't straight. It takes something that's greater to show the lesser. It takes the real, Brother Brown would talk about, to show the counterfeit. If all you knew was a counterfeit dollar, that would become the real dollar. But because there is a real dollar, then there is a counterfeit dollar. Because there is a real Christian, then there is a fake Christian. Because there is light, then darkness is made known. And the light becomes a detractor to the darkness if you love the darkness. And you look at it and say, but this light, we don't like it because it's showing that my reputation, that who I am, is not a good person. But as long as everything is darkness, I could seem like a good person. But now as it would go on in John chapter 3, it would say... For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. 
But that, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. In other words, someone who is living right, who has a straight strick, that's an attraction to them because it shows that they were right all along. It shows that what they were doing was the right thing to do. It shows that God was with them. And I wonder if maybe we could take a step back and, and maybe speak on this through, through the allegory of, of the life of David as I've been in the, the life of David with the young people and we, I was going to save it for Friday, but really I uh, just I felt this could be for everybody. Is that all right? Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 then. First Samuel chapter 17. If I could say, because God is light. Jesus is the light of the world that came into the world. But Jesus then is a detractor to the sinful man. Paul would say that without the law, there was no sin. It took the law to show what was sinful. Jesus came and became the evidence that you don't have to be subject to sin or to the bondage of sin. But because of a righteous man, it proves that you can overcome. Because by one man, he overcame. We're, we're able to show that there's a way to overcome sin. There's a way to overcome bondage. He came that he could be our high priest. That because of his word, you also can overcome. That the shoes that you walk in are God's choosing for you. Satan wants to try and put a little thought in there and say, Well, come walk a mile in my shoes. That's the thought of the devil to try and get you to verify your pity party. Nobody understands what I'm going through. If you walk through my shoes, you would understand everything. No, God chose you in those shoes. God allowed you to be in those shoes so he could show you that can be overcome. So he could make you a testimony. I'm never going to walk a mile in your shoes. And praise God, you're never going to walk a mile in my shoes. They're my shoes. Those are your shoes. I've got my battles to overcome. You've got your battles to overcome. For a purpose that God could show the devil, I've got an overcoming army that no matter what you throw at them, what life path you put them on, or how bad it gets, I will have an overcoming, spotless, virtuous bride in this last day. Amen. Let's not, let's not get kind of a pity party out of you. Well, my life's harder than somebody else. No, my life is the, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for what I'm going through. No matter what it is, because the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in me. Hallelujah. Amen. But darkness we know hates the light. Light is a detractor of the darkness until the darkness is vanquished. Then light becomes the secure. As long as darkness remains in your heart, light will always be hard to cope with. As long as the love of the world is in there, the love of God can't be there. You could try and live the life of a Christian to the absolute best of your ability, but as long as darkness is what's on the inside... This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world. By the coming of light, the very thing that was hated, those that walk in darkness hate the light. But when you receive light, 
the very thing that was hated becomes the reconciler, becomes the deliverer. Your personal detractor becomes your personal secure. A detractor is one that impairs the reputation of another. Something that we've built up is this is who I am, but when the light comes, it says that's not who you are. You can fight against that and say, no, I don't like that. Or receive it. Because a secure is one that offers you relief and deliverance. We can spend so much energy, and I'm just laying a foundation for what's coming, but we can spend so much energy for on trying to build our reputation. This is who I am, and I'm proud of who I am. But let the Word of God be who you are. Because that is the light that we're meant to shine. And if we're not exuding the Word of God, if we're not, our emissions are not the Word of God, then pretty soon we begin to realize our stick isn't straight. I'm defining who I am by my job. I'm defining who I am by the work that I've done. I'm defining who I am by my intellects. I'm defining who I am. All of those things will fail. I'm defining who I am by a gift. Paul would say, though I speak with the tongue of man and angels and have not love, I'm nothing. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's just look at this through the allegory and then we'll come back. We know that this was about the time that David came down and Goliath was making his boast and David began to go around and ask, what shall be done to the man who defeats us, this Goliath? Amen. And I love that thought because we have a right to do that to the Lord too. I've called you to overcome. You've got a right to go before God and say, Lord, what's the reward? You can look at it in the word. My reward is eternal life. Is it worth it? It's worth it. Your reward is joy and peace. Love. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. But now as we come down to verse 26, he said, And David spake to the man that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth the Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And we know the reward that he would have a place in the king's house, and he would marry the king's daughter and all of these things. But in verse 28, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why comest thou down hither, and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. What an accusation. That he comes down and he's looking at it in this way. Look at Eliab's attitude as he begins to look at David and he begins to look at him and say, Listen, I know the pride of your heart. I know the naughtiness of your heart. I know you've just come down to see the battle. What are you doing? He becomes angry within himself. In other words, he looks at David, and David, he's looking at him as his detractor, saying, you're hurting my reputation. The fact that you're here, my younger brother, trying to say, hey, I can do this. You're hurting my reputation because you, by saying you can do it, are saying you're better than me. And I'm a warrior in the king's army. I'm somebody that can really do this. I've trained all my life. There was something that had happened in the past that gave Eliab such an attitude towards David. 
Because David's response to him, and David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And in verse 30, it says, and he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the same manner. So I want you just to back up as, 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 as we begin to look into this, this allegory of, of what it is in our spiritual lives. But Eliab began to have an attitude towards David. If you back up in your scripture and you put 1 Samuel 16 and verse 6 up there, Brother Ethan. If you go ahead and put that up there, we look at the time that the, the prophet Samuel came to find a king. God told him to go down to the house of Jesse and then to anoint the next king of Israel. And it came to pass that when they were come, he looked on Eliab. Think about this. This is the prophet of the day. This is a vindicated prophet of God that everyone had such respect for that they were actually scared when he came down to Bethlehem. Say, what, what are you doing here? Is this a peaceful visit? We know that whatever you say is going to happen. And they knew this was a man of God. So he comes and here comes the very man of God. The prophet of the age looks at Eliab and said out loud. Doesn't say he thought. He said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. What would that do to a young man? To have someone of such affluence, someone of such uh, uh, a high degree of respect, say, surely, this is the Lord's anointed. Eliab thought he had something. Something that had taken place here, Eliab began to think of himself more highly than he ought to have thought. The way that the prophet looked at him. The way that the prophet spoke to him. That he looked him up and down because if you look at verse 7, he said, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or the height of his stature. In other words, God knew Samuel looked at this young man, looked him up and down. Surely, this is the Lord's anointed. Samuel liked Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a strong man. He looked like a king. He looked like somebody that God could really use that man. I mean, he's tall, he's strong, he's mighty, he's well-spoken. He's all of these things, which is exactly what we want. And when he looked at Eliab, he saw Saul. When he looked over at Eliab, he thought that would be a perfect replacement. Because really, in the prophet's mind, the only issue with Saul was his disobedience. He got proud. And he decided he'd do what he wanted instead of what God told him to do through the prophet. He said, well, if we could find someone just like Saul, but he would be obedient, that would be perfect. God said, no. Don't look on those things. Because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Amen. Eliab could tell he was the prophet's choosing. And it began to foster an attitude. It began to foster a spirit in Eliab that he began to go, I should have been the one. That when David come down and said, well, I'll take this giant on, he says, you're hurting my reputation. By you coming down here and being this 
proud, hot-headed, naughty boy, you're hurting me in front of my man. Who do you think you are? David had become Eliab's detractor, even though David was God's choosing. But he thought he deserved what David was receiving. But it's easy for a man, even today, to receive the praise of an affluent individual, such as a vindicated prophet, or a popular preacher, or a wealthy businessman. And to receive that, and because of that, because of their qualities that are liked by these affluent individuals, they they begin to develop an attitude of self-worth but I'm worth more than somebody else because brother so-and-so hangs out with me. I I should be the leader in the message because the prophet spoke about me. Were you the prophet's choosing or were you God's choosing? I'm really close to God because this special speaker that preaches conventions, he likes to be around me. Is that God's choosing? Or is that a man's choosing? I'm building to something here, tearing down some walls. We got to be careful how we look at ourselves, how we view ourselves. And we might be mighty men of valor. Eliab was not a wimp, he was not a slouch. But yet he was afraid. He got caught in the spirit of the, of the, of the whole army that was there going, I don't want to fight this guy. And if you looked, he said, Saul don't want to fight him. He don't want to fight him. He don't want to fight him. I don't want to fight him. I don't think I'm better than those guys. And he got caught into the, the spirit of a church rather than the spirit of Christ. He got caught into that because he wasn't the anointed one. God had an anointed one for this moment in time. But it's easy to receive that kind of praise and think because so-and-so likes me, I ought to be the one to do that. Oh my. (laughs) Sometimes we could even self-select. Don't you know what I've done? I built this. I got a great big company behind me. I spent my time, my hard-earned money. I got all these things. I'm an intellectual person. I've learned all these things. I tell you, I've worked my way up in my company. Somebody ought to recognize me. Self-selection where we still becomes man's choosing, where we got an idea of, I know I, 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 I should have more responsibility. No, you're walking in your shoes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a brother one time that said he was talking to a, a, a brother in his church, and they were talking about something. The brother started talking about this issue and that issue, and the brother finally told the pastor, he said, well, if you make me the deacon, I'll fix all these things. Brother said, what are you going to do, blow the whole church up? (laughs) You equip all the deacons with nothing but sledgehammers and shotguns, you'll just have a church full of deacons because everybody else will leave. That's right. But if you equip the deacons with nothing but flowers and teddy bears, you'll have a bunch of renegades. There's a balance. You got to be careful. Say, well, if I was the deacon, I... Really? If I was the... If I was, 
If I was the pastor, Brother Andrew, I'd tell you. But the red's not here, so I, I, we're, just, we're just taking it this way. Are you with me? We're going to get to grace. Don't worry. Well, the Brennan would say, and what is that in your hand, 1955? He says, his brother looked around, Eliab looked around and said, now I know you'd come up here, you little snickle fritz. <laughs> I don't know what that actually means. Maybe we'd call it a smart aleck. To get into something, you got mischief in your heart. You get back over home to your daddy's sheep. We're the ones standing here in this ecclesiastical affair over here. We got it under control. He says, yeah, it looks like you got it under control, all right. Oh, we got it under control. You just get back. What an attitude. In Perseverance, 1963, he says, his brother said, oh, you know, you're haughty. You're naughty. Go, go on back home to, the, to, to them sheep. Dad got you. You just come here to watch the battle. But Brother Man makes a statement. He says, you cannot out-talk a man of God. There's something done happened to him. Why can't you out-talk a man of God? Not because he can talk faster, because he's more brilliant, but because light, when it presses against darkness, darkness is vanquished. When the word of God, which is light, is spoken, the darkness is always overcome by the light. The detractor will either be convinced or will flee. It has to be that way because that's why you cannot out-talk a man of God, not because he's so intellectual, because he speaks the truth. Another place he says, you know, the bishop told him, says, now look here, son, this man, this, this, this Goliath, he's a theologian, he's a fighter, he was born a fighter, he's a fighter from his youth, and you're no match for him. His brother said to him, oh, you naughty thing, come on down here, and then you just want to do this, don't, don't bother him. But he says, it didn't bother David, why? He knew he was anointed. And God, had the God that delivered him from the lion, the God that delivered him from the paws of the bear, he'll more than deliver him from the Philistine. Here I come. I'll meet you in the name of the Lord Jesus. He said, he said, didn't pray through. He was already prayed through. God prayed him through before the foundation of the world. Walk a mile in my shoes, Brother Andrew. Yeah, God prayed you through for those shoes. Before the foundation of the world. God put you in that place to make sure you're going to make it. But I got a Goliath in front of me. Yeah. Take the word of God. Trust and believe. He was anointed for the job. He had to speak and go forward. That's all there was to do about it. Just speak and go forward. Hey Amen. What a, what a time to be living in. But I wonder if you could look for a minute and go to the Psalms and you begin to see the attitude of David at this time. About Psalms chapter 14 and Psalms chapter 15 were written about the time of 1 Samuel 17 and 18. When he would begin to say these words in Psalms 14 verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good to the Lord. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This is what's on the mind of David as he begins to go down into this camp and as he begins to speak with his brethren. These are those words that are on his heart saying, Lord, is there anyone? 
Goliath is a fool that says there's no God. He's not looking at him as a giant. He says, no, he's a fool. Is there anyone that would seek God? Is there anyone that would do good and seek the Lord? There's no one. He begins to say in the next chapter, chapter 15, verse 1, says the Lord, Lord, who shall abide in that tabernacle? Who shall dwell in the holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contend. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. This is David begin to write these psalms right around this time. As he begins to look, we, we, we get an insight into what David was thinking. An insight into what was on his heart. As he walked down there and said, this guy's no problem for me. I can take this giant out. Why? These are the things that's on his heart. Saying, Lord, I haven't, I'm not backbiting with my tongue. I'm not doing evil to my neighbor. I'm not taking up reproach against my neighbor. I'm not doing all these things so I know I shall never be moved. I'm living according to the word of God. I've got something in me that's the light, and I'm trying to do the best that I can. Therefore, what does his brother say? You're just here to put on a show. His denominational brothers, as Brother Branham calls it. It's easy to get into that spirit of lifting up yourself in the sight of others. Let's go back to this for a moment. It's easy to build a personal denomination around a certain individual being the definition of a Christian. You can build a denomination around anyone and say, well, that, when I attain to that, no, it's to Christ. We're to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's easy to even build it around Brother Branham and say, well, that, if we could just be like Brother Branham. Yes, he was the wave sheaf over this generation. The wave sheaf was for the purpose of so we could come to that maturity. Not so we could be just like him in all of his qualities. Because otherwise, pretty soon, we're all going to be hunters and fishers. Better all get ourselves a little gun and call it a little blondie and go out and Start shooting squirrels in the eyes. Whoever we'll go and teach everybody how to fish just right. You'll never win a vegan with a hunting story. It's just not going to work. They're not going to be interested in how you shot the caribou with a certain amount of horns or, or an elk. Or, they're not going to be interested about the brown bear. They're not going to be interested about a grizzly. They're not going to be interested about this one and that one and this deer and that deer and the javelina hog. Why? Because they're vegan. They don't want to hear about those things. But somebody else is interested in those things. Because we're not looking for a bunch of hunters. Christ is looking for his qualities. A Christ is the definition of being a Christian. Let us reflect him and him alone. Our emission ought to be the light of Christ, not the intellects of the message. We then would go on about David, say them scoffers standing there, you know, they, they'd be standing there saying scoffing and making fun and saying his brothers, you know, saying, oh, you're just, you're just naughty. You didn't, you, that, that didn't move him one bit. You want to be different from somebody else. You just want to show off. He said, if it had been showing off, it had been so. But they only looked at the intellectual side. 
David know the anointing oil was on him. Then let me ask you this. Why didn't David tell Eliab that? Why was his response back to Eliab just, what have I done to you? What is the cause of this? Why didn't he set him down and have a three-hour sermon on why he's the anointed one? Why he's the one that ought to be doing this and why God chose him and all of these things. But no, he just spoke the word that it would be. He said, and he he spoke to to, to Saul, and he said, uh, God gave me the bear, and God gave me the lion, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be as one of those, and he was exactly as one of those. He hit him down with a slingshot, took the sword out of him, and cut his head off. He just spoke the word that it would be, and went forward to make it be fulfilled. Amen. Oh, brother, he spoke and took over the situation that day. If he had that kind of confidence, then he ought to have dealt with Eliab's accusation maybe harshly. If you're so confident, why didn't he deal with it that way? Why didn't he speak the word to him? Why didn't he call him out? No, that was his brother. Intellects does not destroy doubt. The light of Christ shining through a surrendered individual. In other words, faith. Faith destroys doubt. David dealt with the attitude of his brother with brotherly kindness. He could have said a lot of things to Eliab. But he just turned to him and said, what have I now done? What is the cause of this accusation? And then what did he do? He didn't even wait for an answer. He just turned to the next guy and carried on. I'm on a mission. I don't have time for this. We're on a mission. To be like Christ. We're on a mission to be raptured. We don't have time to answer the detractors of the message. The message can defend itself. He didn't refer back to his position or his anointing. He didn't embarrass Eliab. But rather he went back to the cause of the attitude in kindness without addressing any of the words spoken. He didn't address about the pride of his heart. He didn't address about the naughtiness. He didn't address about being there to see the battle. He didn't address, he didn't address about any of those things because all of them were false. He just pointed them back to say, Eliab, in other words, there's no cause. It was a rhetorical question. There's no cause for you to act this way. And carried on. Watch then how David handles himself because he simply reminded him that there was no cause for him to be the detractor when in fact he was there as the deliverer. David then in the next few chapters, he begins to handle himself in the public eye. We'll go through it quickly as Saul then becomes jealous of David because he received greater praise. We know the story how they went through riding chariots and the women begin to sing, David, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul became jealous of David and began to seek to kill him. A darkness had come over Saul and his kingdom, an evil spirit sent by the Lord to afflict him because of his disobedience. Saul tried actively to kill David. First was the javelin. You know the stories of how he would go down and he, the, the evil spirit would come in and David would go in again with the harp and begin to play and Saul would sit there with the javelin and twice try to hit it 
and then later on, and a little bit later, a third time, tried again. Trying to point blank murder David. But David, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 14, says, And David behaved himself wisely in all of his ways. The Lord was with him. Wherefore, even Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, and he was afraid of him. At, at this moment and in this time when Saul is trying to kill him, and he's, he's, he's having this, this crisis where Saul is even coming in between him and Jonathan, he's finally found a friend that he can have such a, a soul binding to as, as him and Jonathan did. But Saul comes right in the middle of it because Jonathan is Saul's son. He's the, he's the crown prince. And David is trying to be killed by Saul. And he's, they're torn apart. And it's such a, a, a woeful time for David. But even David in Psalms chapter 17 about this time begins to write and says, Let my sentence come from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. In other words, David, he keeps his thoughts on God. He is not worried about the sentence of man and what Saul's saying about him. What he's worried about is what God thinks about him. In verse 8, he begins to say, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Amen. About this time, Saul or David would also write later on, and he'd say, Arise, O Lord, disappoint him. Verse 13, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is my sword, which is thy sword. Verse 15 says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. David's thoughts are continually on the Lord. Surely you'd think he's, he's got to be coming up with some conniving way to get out of the hand of Saul. But he wasn't. He was thinking about God. He said, Lord, you be my inspiration. You help me defeat the bear. You help me defeat the lion. You help me defeat Goliath. And if you follow it down, David, Saul finally decides to make David his son-in-law after fulfilling, to, to, after all, to fulfill the promise of defeating Goliath. But then he tries to whisper in David's ear, sends his servant, says, just tell him in his ear, say, the, the king really wants you to be his son-in-law. He really wants you to marry his daughter. He really wants these things. All of it was a ruse so that he could give himself glory. Because the laws of the land, was especially the dowry of a princess, was very expensive. David says, I, 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 know I can't afford those things. I can't afford to, be the, to, to pay for, the, for, for, for a princess. I can't afford to pay the dowry. But Saul, the, the servants begin to whisper, Saul's willing to overlook all of those things. He's trying to get in the good graces. See, I built David up. He's trying to get himself away to, say, to take glory off of David and say, no, no, no. He's who he is because I made him that way. I brought him into the kingdom. But David says, no, no, I don't want any of that. He forces Saul, actually, to name a dowry. Saul says, I want 100 Philistine foreskins. Bring them all to me, proof of 100 dead Philistines. So David goes out with his men, kills 200. Amen. What does it do? It enrages the king even more. He's going, man, God really is with this guy. I can't seem to overcome him at all. It even says, 1 Samuel 18, verse 28 it says, and Saul knew, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David. Light and darkness, warring. 
David was a deliverer in the nation. David was somebody who was bringing victory in the camp. David was somebody that was allowing Israel to live free and free of war and overcome every battle. But here's the king saying, no, you're a detractor to me. You're against my reputation. You're everything I don't like. I don't want you to be around here. Actually, I want to try and kill you actively. And he becomes more and more afraid of David because he's worried that David is going to take his kingdom from him. But David became, or Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistine went forth and it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name was much set by. I'm going through this for a purpose. 1 Samuel 18.30, if you read it from the Amplified Version, it would say, so that his name was very dear and highly esteemed. David became known. Everything Saul did to try and hurt David, kill David, or make him a lesser person. The kings were known back then to go in and out by their own way. They didn't have to go amongst the people. They had their own place. They had their palace. They had things. But he forced David and his men to go in and out with the common people. You can read it in the scripture if you look in Samuel chapter 18. He forced David and his man, you need to go in and out with the people. You know what it did? It made the people love David more. Amen. Saul thought it would make him seem like a lesser person because he's not worthy to go in with the king and the princes and my servants. But it made the people love him more. And all Israel and in all of Judah begin to love David even more. Why? Because they've seen he's one of us. He's not trying to be above everybody else. He's not trying to make himself something. God is with this man. God is really using this guy. David could never win back Saul, but not because of a lack of doing what was right, but because the evil spirit that was upon Saul was sent of the Lord. It was the will of God that it would be this way. But, but that was not the only detractor David had. Watch the way David handled himself in the presence of the king and in all of the opposition, the way that he handled himself. This must have had an impact on Eliab. Eliab that before had, had harbored this attitude towards David and harbored all of these things and, and thought, well, you're proud, you're all these things, you're, you're a detractor to my reputation, you're thinking you're somebody. But in all of it, there came, therefore, uh, there was not another recorded conversation between David and Eliab after 1 Samuel 18. Nothing, or 1 Samuel 17, sorry. There was no more conversation, so it wasn't David's intellect. It wasn't David's knowledge. It wasn't his ability to quote scripture. It wasn't his ability to quote prophetic quotes to Eliab. It was none of these things. David even spent a time and went, spent time up there with the prophet, and we know that Saul sent servants, and Saul himself eventually went, and they all prophesied. None of them could take David. But it wasn't that ability that won Eliab over. It was a supernatural God showing himself present with David that turned his familial detractor into one of his warriors. Because if you look down and you go down, Eliab eventually come to fight with him because in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, it said, And David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, Eliab's included in that one. All of his brethren, all his father's house, they went down thither to him. The very one that said, you need to go back to the sheep. You're got nothing but a proud heart. Now he says, comes back and says, David, I I'll fight for you. I was wrong. 
He won him over that David that once was looked at as a detractor had become a succurer. Where he said, you're my deliverer. You're the deliverer of Israel. You're the one that we need. You're the king and I'm going to fight for you in the end. And it says in the next verse, verse 2, he says, and everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. And they were with him about 400 men. I said, Praise God, they've got 400 men strong. They've got these things. Hold on a second. Everyone that was in distress, what a ragtag band of men. Everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves to him. Say, surely, if God's with someone, it'll attract the educated, the high courtly, the mighty men? No. Not at all. It, it, it attracted the ones that were in distress. The ones that had all of the problems. The ones that thought, man, I, I am a nobody. I'm useless in this life. I, I'm in the kingdom of Saul. I got debt. I'm in distress. The king's after me. This is my problem. That's my problem. All of these things. The CRA's out to get me. They said, Did they have the CRA in Israel? I don't think so. But he said, I've got all these issues, and who are they coming to? He said, God's with this person. I need a supernatural God in my life. And I seen this is where the supernatural God is. So I'm coming to this person. The one that maybe they could blame all their problems on. They looked at it, they could say, well, listen, the reason Saul's in the state he's in, the reason the country's in such disarray is because David's so blessed of God. We should all hate David. No. They said, maybe it is because God's turned to David, but then we need to turn to David. They saw God was operating through this man. Neither can we win over detractors by our knowledge by our abilities, by our gifts, by our intellectuals. That won't win anybody. But it takes a supernatural God to show himself alive. That's the only way you can change yourself in the eyes of those around you. Say, well, I know what God did for me and everyone just treats me the same. Just believe and live what God showed you. Stay true. Stay strong in the word of God. Believe his word. Walk in what's right and what's true in you personally. People will see that. It took them years with David. It'll take a long time with you and I too for someone to find see something's different about that individual. He's not doing it the way he used to be. God's really with him. God's blessed him here a little bit. God's blessed him there a little bit. God's blessed him financially a little bit. God's blessed him spiritually a little bit. He's given him a little revelation. He's given him a little, a little bit of trust. He's given him a little bit of that. Why? It takes time to build up that reputation. Not a reputation in the eyes of man, but to show that God is with him. God's using him. He's been using him. Oh my, I'm not talking about the devil. The devil's beyond help. He's never going to change his opinion of you. The reason of his creation, though, is for your perfection. Don't worry about it. He's not going to become your greatest fan. 
He's always going to hate you. He's all about death and destruction. It doesn't matter how much you could follow and believe every lie he has. He still wants to destroy you. He's not offering you something better. He's just offering you something to try and get you to believe him. That's what it was through Eve. He tried to offer Eve. Say, you'll be like God's. And the whole purpose was death and destruction. Amen. You'll never win him over. Jesus couldn't win him over either. God himself, in flesh, tempted three times after he fasted and prayed in the, in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, come back out. He just quote the scripture right back to him, and still it didn't win the devil over. He died and shed his blood and did all of these things that are mighty and marvelous things. Still it didn't win the devil over. He rose again on the third day. Still it didn't win the devil over. We're not going to win him over. He is who he is. And I'm going to say it this way, by the grace of God. Because of who he is, we can be who we are. Because he's such a crooked stick, it shows that our stick is straight. It shows that there's something in us that's real and true and pure. The Bible says, Jesus began to speak and say, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you, but you are the salt of the earth. Amen. Amen. But if he, if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden underfoot of a man. In other words, listen, you're the salt of the earth. You need to be salty. It needs to be to a point someone revile you and come against you and say all manner of evil against you. It's not for you to walk away and go, oh man, everybody just hates me. My life is so hard. Everybody's against me. My brothers hate me. My sisters hate me. The people in the church, they just they look at me in such a way that I'm sure they hate me. The salt has lost its savor. But rather to stand up and say, no, I'm a child of God. Amen. Hate me or love me, I know I'm going through. Amen. Whatever, if, if I'm the only one, I'm the only one. I know I'm not, but if I am, praise be to God, I'm going through. Whatever it may take, I'm going to make it because I believe what the Lord Jesus Christ said about me. I'm the salt of the earth, so I'm going to be salty because he said in the next verse, you are the light of the world. Not just him, but you are the light of the world. Why? Because he's in you. You're a city that set on a hill cannot be hid. Hallelujah. You can't hide who you really are. If one is able to be one... It can only be done by being the light of the world. Think of Jesus on the cross for a minute. When Jesus was there, Mark chapter 15, verse 39, says, And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The very one that nailed him to the cross, that presided over his death, but by the supernatural poise of this man while being crucified, forgiving his crucifiers. Something about the light shining through Jesus Christ changed him from realizing this man is not my detractor. This man is not against me. This man is not against what I've done. This man is my savior. This man is my secure. This man is my high priest. Surely this is the son of God. Think about Paul for a minute. Paul, 
or Saul, who was Stephen's detractor, presided over his death, but something about Stephen's death when he kneeled there and said, Father, don't lay this into their charge. So I see the heavens open and Jesus sitting there. Something about that, though Paul was sitting there in the hardness of his heart, holding the coats of the ones that were stoning him, saying, yeah, let them have it. But something about it began to prick that little seed in his heart. This, this is real. It wasn't Stephen's words. It wasn't the way Stephen looked. But there was a light that shone out. There was a light that came forth, pierced the darkness of Saul's heart when he began to realize something's different. And as he took those... He took those letters up to Damascus. I'm sure something was moving in Saul's heart. As he began to ponder on that, that began to bother him. It bothered him all his life. You find it even in Hebrews where it bothered Paul that he'd presided over the death of Stephen. Something began to move in his heart even before Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus. He began to go, I don't understand it. How could a man stoned, sat there. Would I be like that? I'm so confident that this Pharisaic creed, this is the truth, but if I was stoned like that for what I believe, would I live like that? Would I have that much poise about myself, that much forgiveness in my heart? Would I be rallying against them? Something began to move. Just open the door just enough for Jesus to come in. They come down in a light and said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecuted. The same quickening power that was there in Stephen was there on the light and the pillar of fire. Met Saul. And that same quickening power that met him there birthed him into the very body that he considered a detractor to the Jewish faith. These people are against us. But when quickening power came, the light of God, it changed it. Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, So Simon Peter, an apostle, a servant and an apostle, of Jesus Christ, to them who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Whereby are we given unto, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You say, but what about my position? What about my knowledge? What about my righteousness? What about my my years served? What about my office? What about my what about my but God looks on the heart of man. He sees the motives and the objectives. 
His word is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's looking for his own divine nature to be displayed through an individual of his choosing. Only one thing defeats darkness. Light. And it's only by the grace of God that we're made partakers of the divine nature to become the light of the world that we are able to not be stumbling around in gross darkness. Unable to overcome the lust of the world. It's not by our own ability. It's only by the grace of God that we're able to have light in this day that we're not stumbling around in gross darkness as the world is seeking for something to grab onto, something that is sure. But God, by his grace, amen, just like he did to Paul, put a little something in his heart, a predestinated seed that said, this is my church aid's messenger, that God put something in our hearts to be able to receive the divine nature of God. Now, the very essence of the message, Brother Branham says, it's in the message, uh, uh, Shalom, I believe. No. In the message, it is the rising of the sun. He says, now the very essence of the message that was sent was that he is risen from the dead. That's still the very essence of the message. That Christ is risen from the dead. And that we are his beneficiaries. We who share the resurrection with him. Hallelujah. We that share the resurrection with him. And Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That we're sharing in the resurrection with him. We are the beneficiaries of what he's done. Amen. He's the testator. We are the beneficiaries. We're the ones that look into the will and begin to realize it's all for me. I'm the one that he wrote in the will that said, because I died, I'm giving you this. Because I died, I'm giving you joy. Because I died, I'm giving you peace. Because I died, I'm giving you eternal life. Because I died, I am giving you victory over the enemy. Because I died, I'm giving you everything that you ever have need of. And because I died, I'm giving you a rapture. The rapture is not something that you will ever attain to by your own abilities. It is the grace of God that has called us in a day and age of today that you are going to make it because he said so. That we can draw benefits from this by proving to the world that he is alive. Hallelujah. By proving to the world Think of it for a minute. If you walked out of here today and you had some rich relative that passed away and put you in their will, you've just inherited a billion dollars. And you walked around to everyone and said, I've inherited a billion dollars. And you pull up in your little clunker, 92 Corolla. It hardly works. And the brakes, you got to pump them real hard. And they're like, you inherited a billion Sure. And you had them over to your house. And they're, well, how much did you spend on this house? Oh, I'm actually renting a basement suite downstairs. Right. And it's kind of run down. And it's moldy. And it's this and it's that. You inherited a billion dollars. Sure. We're going on a vacation this weekend. Yeah, where are you going? I'm going to drive to Leduc. <laughs> you inherited a billion? Sure. 
no one's going to believe you. But when you start to live in a mansion, do you need the mansion? Nope. It's just me. But I didn't know what else to do with the money. You started coming in and saying, brother, I'm going to pay for your trip to go overseas. No problem. I got you. You're covered. Where'd you get that money from? I inherited it. When you show up in a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, maybe something's different about him. The big pickup truck you've always wanted. Toyota Tundra. A little bit of lift kit on it. A little bumper on the front. Tires, rims. All these things. All the bells and whistles. You think, yeah, that's just what I want. Praise be to God. $120,000 later, it's nothing. I inherited a billion dollars. What's the big deal? Where are you going this weekend on a vacation? Well, I figured I'd hit up the Bahamas on my private jet, and then we'd run over here and go over there. Maybe go to Thailand in the end, because I heard they got a good restaurant over there. That guy's inherited something. That guy's got some money. It starts to show. When you start to tell the world, I'm the beneficiary of what Jesus Christ did. (laughs) Oh, the doctor. (laughs) You walk into the doctor, I need some medicine quick. Why? My throat hurts. I thought you said you were the beneficiary of by his stripes you're healed. I'm not doing that. I'm not going there, Brother Andrew. They might kill me. I'd be scared to go overseas to a third world country. I don't know what. I might subtract malaria or something. I thought you said you were the beneficiary. I might get kicked out of my job if I make a stand for Jesus Christ. They might fire me if I tell the boss that that's not right. I thought you said you were the beneficiary. I thought you said your father was the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. I thought you said he gave you that job. If he gave you that job, that he could take it away or he could give it to you and help you keep it. Or he could give you a better job. I thought you said you were a beneficiary. So tell me, are you or are you not? Do you have the faith it takes to look at the word of God and say, I'm standing on his promises one by one. No matter what it takes, I'm going to stand here and believe it. No matter how long it takes to come to pass, I'm just going to believe it and take God at his word. We cannot do it. Oh, we cannot do it just by word only. We can't do it by some tradition of man. Brother Branham says, we only reflect exactly what we're pointing to. I'm afraid today we got too many of us that are not getting people to Christ. We're getting them to a church or to a theory. I need to qualify this for a moment because I need you to understand what Brother Brown is saying here. He's not saying don't get them to these four walls. What a shame it would be to try and witness to somebody and they say, well, where do I go to church? I don't know. My church is not very great. You don't want to go there. The people are a little, eh, I think they're somebody. What a shame. He says we ought to get them to Christ. So he's not talking about just these four walls. We ought to be diligent in getting people into this atmosphere here so that God could speak to them and God could speak to their hearts and enable them to get that little prick of light into that predestined seed and cause something to grow. It ought to be our diligence to do that. 
Let to be our zeal and our desire, but not, he says, not to some theory. In other words, don't bring them to say, well, this is just as a bunch of offices. This is the hierarchy of the church. You sit in the pew, you be quiet, you shut up, and you listen. No, don't bring them to that kind of a church. Bring them to a church where God could change them. And be a benefactor to that church and of that church. Be a partaker of it. Be somebody that puts into it to say, well, I want God to speak to the person next to me. Therefore, I'm going to pull on the word for their sake. Amen. If I want someone to come to church, I want to be sure that I am my emissions is Jesus Christ. We got to get them to Christ. Hallelujah. It's the individuals that make up the church. That would be a direct representation of the very essence of the message. The essence of the message is that Christ is risen. Are we a representation that Christ is risen? Not just a reflection of Jesus Christ, but actually an omission of Jesus Christ. That our light has risen and Jesus in the individual is the church that we bring to the sinner. Jesus will say, yet a little while the world will see me no more. Yet you shall see me. I'll be with you even in you to the end of the world. I will not leave you comfortless. I'll pray the Father. He'll send you another comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the world cannot receive. Yet you can receive him. Now notice he says the greater works was to have the power of the church. The power in the church, sorry. The greater works was to have the power in the church. Not only to heal the sick by prayer and to cast out devils by prayer, but to impart eternal life to believers. That's a quote. I'm reading this directly out of that day on Calvary, 1960. That the power that God gave to the church was to impart eternal life. Oh, that's what Calvary meant. It took stooped, degraded men and women, lifted and lifted them up into a place to be sons and daughters of God. Just like the ones that came to David, stooped, degraded, full of problems, but David, being their deliverer, came to them and made them mighty men of valor. They became the 400 that were around him. 30 of them became his 30. That was his bodyguard that did mighty things. One of them jumped in a pit. Oh my, destroyed all of these things. And one of them took the spear off of an Egyptian giant and slew the giant. With his own spear. These people were people with problems. It wasn't their ability, but it's because they believed in something. It's because they believed that God was with David. And as long as I'm with David, I cannot be defeated. Hallelujah. We ought to believe in something in the word of God and what Jesus Christ did for us. The very essence of the message that he's risen and as long as I'm with him. Oh, hallelujah. It took that stoop down and made them sons and daughters of God to heal the sick and impart eternal life by giving the Holy Ghost to obedient believers. Men who were once unbelievers, he made believers and impart spiritual eternal life. How much greater is it to say this sick woman laying here, I can pray the prayer of faith and she'll be healed. That's a great thing. But what, but what is he doing then? But the greater than this shall you do, I'm going to give you power not only to raise him up for the while, but to give him eternal life, which is eternal forever. 
Poor, blind, wretched people, how do you miss that? Don't you see that the greater thing is, that's the greatest thing that could ever happen was to impart eternal life to people. What is eternal life? The life that he lived. The life that was in him imparted to others. Oh God, can a man do that? A son of God can. I thought you said you were a beneficiary. Say, well, I've received eternal life, but what about what you can do? As a son of God, in your rightful place, to be able not only, well, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, the firm and effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much, but beyond that, the greater works, to be able to impart eternal life. Oh, praise be to God. How did I get these sins forgiven in the Bible? Peter answered the question. It's not like the Catholic Church says, well, I just forgive sins. You come confess. And I, no, not that way. But he says, according to the word of God, that the church would preach and it would be able to come and say, oh, on the day of Pentecost, what can we do to be saved? Peter had the answer. By revelation, Peter had the answer. I hope you're catching this for a minute. It wasn't that I literally have the ability to give you eternal life. But rather, Christ Jesus in me enables me to speak the word of God in order to overcome the situation of the day. That I can speak something that will cause you to come to eternal life. Like David, like, like Paul did when he, or Peter, sorry, when he said, what must I do to be saved? He said, men and brethren, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall receive the Holy Ghost. And the promises to you and to your children, to many that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Oh my, why? It was Peter imparting eternal life. It was God through Peter. The power that was given to the church. Just like David when he came and he stood there before Saul and said, this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like that lion. He just spoke the word and acted on it. That's not a theory. How can we do this? Preach the word. Verily, verily, Jesus says, John 5, 24, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I might not be the prophet's choice. I might not be best buddies with all the favorite preachers of the day. But I'm God's choice. He chose me. That's not just me. That's every one of us. I didn't choose this path. Nobody put me on this path, but God chose this for me. I don't need a supernatural visitation of the pillar of fire. I don't need a dream of the prophet. I don't need great outward manifestations of gifts in my life. He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Amen. Shall not come into judgment, 
but has passed from death unto life. In other words, the darkness is vanquished by your believing. Abraham says the Pentecostal church in its Laodicean condition, oh, they still jump and holler and carry on when the music is beating, but when the music beat stops beating or the beatnik music some of them play and call it Christianity, whatever that, that is, that stops. All the glory is gone. Yeah. If it isn't a real praise of God, there isn't enough whistle or enough power in the world to stop it. If it's a real praise from your heart, if it's a real praise of God, it doesn't matter. You can have the best music or the worst music. You can have no music. You can have people shouting at you all kinds of things. You can have people telling you to be quiet, but if it's a real praise, there's not enough power in the world to stop it. When it really comes from God, it won't take music to beat it up. It takes the Spirit of God to come down. That's what does it. And they forgot long ago that they've classed the gift of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. And I heard devils and witches speak in tongues. He said, the Holy Ghost is the word of God in you that identifies itself by accepting that word. Outside of that, it can't be the Holy Ghost. If it says it's the Holy Ghost and denies one word of the Bible, it cannot be the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence whether you believe it or not. We must get people to Christ. He's the only one, the only one that has life. Going back to it is the rising of the sun. He says, he that has the sun has life. If the life of a man that's dead be projected in you, you will live the same life that he lived. If the blood of a man was a certain type and you took the blood from one man and changed the blood from that one man into another, it would absolutely be that typed blood. You would take on his spirit. If your spirit that's in you is reckoned dead, if you are anointed with the life that was in Christ is upon you. I would say, listen, if you take your life out, you're dead, and the life of Christ is in you, it will display what he did. Romans 8.21, if, if the spirit that raised up Christ, or 8.11, if the spirit that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you, it will quicken your mortal body. The same life, the same powers, the same beneficiaries that he was there, that, 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 he was here, that he had here on earth from God, he redeemed you, a seed that was for no one of God, whose name was put on the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And Black Bartimaeus 57, Brother Bram says, we got our minds on too many things of the world. If we would just throw those things off our mind and think about him and his soon coming, there'd be more revelations and power in the church. But we keep thinking about the things. What am I going to do tomorrow? What will I do next week? Will I be this or will I be that? All those things are in the hands of God. Think on Christ. As we talked about David, what was, why was I showing that? What was he thinking about? What was in his mind as he's penning the Psalms, as he's going through all these things? It wasn't about how am I going to tomorrow? How am I going to survive? How am I going to do this? He put his mind on God and God protected him. Amen. God made sure that he was going to be okay. Brother Branham says in another place, statue of a perfect man, Talks about it this way. He says, yield yourself 
And after a while, you break away from yourself. He says, there comes a vision. Go, go to such and such a place. Do such and such a thing. He says, see, but it starts off from meditating your mind on God. Out of this world. Think on these things, as the Bible says. Away from the world. Out, of the, out in the wilderness to yourself. He's not talking about you got to go out in the wilderness and get out in a field somewhere. No, he's saying out in the wilderness, out of this world. Get out, outside of what this world is all concerned about. Get your mind off of it. Put it out there on God. He says, and then it starts coming, one, one. He says, and I say any number or anything, just, just something starts gradually, faintly coming in. He would describe it like two plus two equals four. Two plus two equals four. Two plus two equals four. Two plus two. Two plus two equals four. Two plus two. Two plus. And it just comes more and more. Why? Because he got his mind off the world. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about you. He says, "I do this, but this is you can too." He says, "You." Then it comes faster. You sit there, raise your hands, don't say a word. is good instruction. Just hold your hands in the air. First thing you know, your whole being is caught away. Then you see things that he wants you to know, showing you things that is to come. Sometimes it comes up to a spot until a certain spot and then it stops. It doesn't go into vision. He says, but then scriptures just pour together. And I grab my pencil so I won't forget it and I write it down and write it down. I've, I've lived my whole ministry based on this quote. This is how I get messages. Lord, what do you want me to speak? I'll get myself aside to the Lord and just think about him. Take a certain scripture, something that God's speaking to me on, and just meditate on that. And don't say a word until God begins to come in. And scripture comes, and scripture comes, and scripture comes, and quote comes, and scripture comes. And then you've got to get quick on the computer and start typing it and putting it together as you start forgetting it all. But God still moves that way. I'm not a prophet. He's not describing to you how a prophet works. He's describing to you how a son of God operates. How you can get something from God. More revelation. If we could get the things of the world off of our minds and get our minds on Christ and his soon coming, there would be more revelations and power in the church. And that gospel light of the resurrection. Back to it is the rising of the sun. I'm trying to close here. And the gospel light of the resurrection, the, con the confirmation of the word. How did we know that he was Christ? Because he proved what he talked about. How will we know the message of the hour? God proves what he promised. He talks about it. That is the identification that we are beneficiaries with him in the resurrection. That he proves what he has talked about. That's... The proof that he's alive. That's the proof of the essence of the message. That Christ is risen because it's proven through lived out lives in our day. Let's stand to our feet. If we could just get our own thinking. This is, this is the trap of Laodicea. We're so busy. We've got so much going on. We've got so much to think about. 
We've got devices that consume our time. And even when we're done and we put them away and we say, Lord, I want some time with you, the things that we've been seeing are so imprinted on our mind that we can't stop thinking about them. If we could just get ourselves aside to God and say, Lord, I don't want to think my own thoughts. I don't want to think about the things of the world. I don't want to think about work tomorrow. Just let my mind be on Jesus Christ. What if we could just sing it? We'll sing this song a couple verses, then we'll go to, or a couple times we'll go to prayer. Keep your mind stayed on me. Keep your mind stayed on me. Stayed on me. morning or this afternoon as we're just thinking on these thoughts maybe there's someone that you have in your life that maybe you've looked at as a detractor someone that's just been like an emery stone has just rubbed you the wrong way I mean you just can't seem to get along with or it seems like it's been they're just out to get you maybe it's someone at work maybe it's someone at school Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone in the church or somebody in the message. Someone that maybe you can't hardly even be around because you just, maybe like Eliab was to David. Oh, I just, I, they're always thinking the worst of me. They're always, always out to get me. Always making light of my situation. I don't like that person very much. I want to encourage you this morning. Your best effort will not win them over. It takes Christ. It takes a supernatural God to come and move on your heart and move on their heart. In order to have unity in the body of Christ, which that's the body that Jesus is coming back for, one that's in such harmony together, how can these things be, Brother Andrew? 
to keep our mind on Christ. Not trying to figure out, how am I going to fix this situation? How am I going to... No. But Lord, maybe you could just move on my behalf. I'm just going to keep my thoughts on you. I'm just going to keep my desires on the Word of God. I'm just going to keep thinking about the Lord. If He wants to use me, so be it. If He wants to use somebody else in my life to move on my behalf, so be it. But maybe as you just hold that before yourself, maybe you just want to pray within yourself and ask the Lord. Say, Lord, you're the high priest. As we read it together in Hebrews, the second chapter. He is a merciful and faithful high priest in things that pertain to God. He cares. Maybe it's time just to put it down at his feet. Say, Lord, you've got that person in my life for a reason. Whatever the relationship issue, I'm just going to submit it to you now. It's in your hands now. You have your way, Lord. Help me just to be kind, tender, to just maybe respond like David did. Just say, there's, there's no cause for this. Let's keep our thoughts on the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you with all our hearts, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are our our merciful high priest. Lord, that all these things, Lord, that they overwhelm us at times. Relationships that become strained and things that we don't understand. And we're human, Father. People say things that they don't mean. People look at us in ways that in our own human perception we think, oh, it's this or it's that. But Lord, I pray you'd help us, Lord, to keep our minds on you. Help us to be forgiving one of another, Lord. Seventy times seven, oh God, that we wouldn't hold things against our brother or think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Think that the world ought to revolve around us. Lord, it's you, Lord. It revolves around you. Our whole body ought to revolve around you. Our life ought to revolve around you. Our conversation ought to revolve around you. Our thoughts ought to revolve around you. Lord, you're everything to us, Lord Jesus. You're the only one that can give life. And Lord Jesus, you through us, Lord, are able to impart eternal life to our brothers and our sisters. But oh God, is that what we're doing? Lord, help us, Father, that we would be mindful of one another. Lord, that we would be mindful to be kind, to be tender, Lord, not to let our human tendencies to get in the way of the moving of the Holy Ghost. Lord Jesus, that you would just come on the scene, Lord, of this church. Father, that we'd have a greater revelation, Lord, a greater outpouring of the power of God. Father, deal with us, Lord, we pray. I haven't, you know my heart, Lord. I have not spoken this, Lord, with any situation, any person, anyone, even myself or my mind. In my office all day yesterday, Lord, was a little bit hard to understand for myself for a while I'm going down this road, but Lord, you know. Father, I pray, Lord, 
May you give the increase. We said it multiple times. You look on the hearts of men. I, as a man, I look on the outside, Lord, and I see someone that looks like they're doing well, and I thank the Lord for it, not knowing down underneath they're struggling. But, Lord, I pray you'd help us to be a reaching hand to those that are hurting, Lord. Maybe they're acting that way like Saul because he's hurting, he's afraid, he's worried. Lord, that we could win our brother and our sister closer to you, Lord Jesus. Father, we need you now. We love you. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if we could sing that song that Brother Michael, you ended with. Take these hands and lift them up. Take these hands and lift them up. For I have not the strength to praise you near enough. For I have nothing. I have nothing without you. Bye.